Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Safarova, CEO of FirmsConsulting.com and StrategyTraining.com. Welcome to another great session. We're here with Mindy Weinstein. Mindy is the author of The Power of Scarcity, and she has been named as one of the top women in digital marketing globally. She's a marketing professor at Grand Canyon University and program leader at Columbia Business School and Wharton School. Mindy, so great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Mindy, to start with, maybe to give some context, let's talk about your your story. How did you end up doing what you're doing today? Oh, okay. I love that question. So my background is marketing. I mean, that's what I studied in school. Now it's been a couple of decades, so it's been a long time. And so I've always been a marketer and, you know, as a practitioner and all of that. And so over the years, I've worked in different marketing functions. And then in 2007, I ended up in digital marketing and did that for a while. And I still do it today as a consulting business, but I started teaching full time. And I started doing that just a few years ago, just as a way to be able to like give back and mentor students and really love it. And so I do teach full time now and still have the marketing business. But what led me even to start studying and doing research was when I was on my PhD journey. And I was working on my PhD. And if anyone knows anything about those type of programs, you have to complete a dissertation. And my dissertation was on scarcity. And it was really driven by the fact that, again, coming from a marketing perspective, I was interested in consumer behavior. And with that, I thought, okay, how can I really combine my experience in the business world with what I'm studying, which was general psychology with an emphasis in technology and really bring that into something that I can use. And that's how I ended up in the whole road of studying scarcity and really why I guess I'll be here with you today and why I have the book. So that's the short version. Mindy, and do you remember a defining moment in your life when you realized this is what you want to dedicate your life to? Yes. You know, actually, so, you know, you're going through my bio. I do a lot of things. I mean, I teach, I'm a marketer and then I'm also, you know, wrote this book, but I knew pretty early on that I did want to pursue the academic professor route. And that defining moment for me was actually when I was in school. And I remember when I was in the undergraduate program, I was the student who sat on the front row, front and center, raised my hand all the time. And so I really got to know my instructors. And during that time, I thought to myself, I want to do this one day. I want to give back and be able to mentor young professionals. And that was a defining moment at that part in my life that I knew that I wanted to pursue this piece of my career. And so, I mean, there's been a lot, but I would say that's the first one that pops into my mind. Mindy, and the digital marketing is something that is constantly changing. Yes. There are just so many things that are working today. They're no longer working tomorrow. How do you stay on top of everything that is going on? 
Oh, that's such a good question. And it's actually something that it requires daily discipline because it is a moving target. Digital marketing is always changing, but what's changing is really the new technologies, the new applications, things like that. But at the core, you're still trying to reach people. So that part is going to remain. But to stay up to date, when I say it's a daily discipline, I mean, I'm constantly reading. You know, I have the app on my phone that brings in all these different industry publications where I'm looking at the feeds, reading the headlines and seeing what, what's new and what's changed and what are other brands doing. And that really helps me stay up to date and, and realize like, well, what can I apply in my own you know, marketing business too? And uh, when you started studying scarcity, what surprised you? What did you not expect? Yeah uncover so well a lot <laughs> there actually was a lot when I first started studying scarcity I think I was like a lot of people where when you think about scarcity marketing I think our minds go to those emails that we get that'll say you know only one left or only one seat available or running out soon you know today only but scarcity is a lot more than that those are just a couple examples. And so what really surprised me about scarcity is that there's actually four different types when we're looking at marketing. There's time related and you know those are those are truly flash sales, coupons, all those things. There's supply related, so that's when there is some type of restriction on getting a product or a service. There's demand related and that's popularity bestsellers, those kind of things. And then there's also limited edition. And what I realized, what opened my eyes to this topic and realized it is very complex is that each of those types of scarcity really messages or approaches work in different ways. They don't work for every product or service and they don't work for every customer. And the more that I started digging into it, I just was surprised at how powerful scarcity is on us. And there's been brain scans and we can talk about all those kind of things where it just shows the actual activity of our brain when we're exposed to scarcity. And it just blew me away. And I realized, you know, this is really a topic that's a lot more complex than I think most of us realize, especially in business. Minty, and you mentioned one of the types of scarcity is demand scarcity. Can you elaborate on this? Because I think this one is the hardest to understand where the scarcity is coming from. Let's say right. a bestseller book. Is it because only few books can become a mm -hmm. bestseller? Good question. So when, and if you don't mind, I'll just do a really brief definition of each of them and then get into more detail on the demand one. But, you know, time related, that's any type of time restriction. So it could be a limited time product or offering. It could be a just a limited time promotion, that kind of thing. And then supply related is really any type of either distribution shortage or an intentional restriction of supply. And we see that a lot, especially with more like luxury goods and things like that. There's only so many produced. Limited edition is actually part of supply related scarcity. I just pull it out as a separate category because it is standalone is powerful. And that's just a modification of the original product or even the packaging can be a limited edition, but demand related. So that is based on popularity. And I, you know, I mentioned bestseller because that falls into that category. So what happens when it comes to demand related scarcity, the way that our brains work is if we see something that is scarce, we assign it more value. And that does happen a lot, even with demand. When we see something that is selling out and it's because it's so popular and you think of well, Black Friday, Black Friday is an example of like all the types of scarcity. But when we think about things that are uh, 
selling out or popular, people are drawn to it. In our minds, we think, well, that must be good because so many people wouldn't be wrong. They wouldn't be drawn to that product or service or restaurants. So you think of that. You think about when you're traveling and you're not sure which restaurant to go to, but one's crowded and the, you know, actually look, let's do it this way. A lot of them are crowded, but one's not. It's going to make you think, oh, well, maybe that one's not as good. And that has to do with demand. And so it really, in our minds, it's demand, high demand equals value. Makes sense. It's interesting. You can think a lot about scarcity and just such a deep topic. Mm -hmm. Why you dedicated so much time to it. In your research, have you spent some time looking at how scarcity was used in marketing in the past? let's say 50 years ago and so on. And how is it used now and what is expected in the future? Yeah, so I mean, I definitely, there's a lot of examples even from the past. I could even go back farther than 50 years, like thinking about Coca-Cola. So we'll talk about a big brand. You know, like I said, time-related scarcity is even a type of, you know, falls into that category. So thinking about Coca-Cola in the, late 19th century, the founder of the company would send out handwritten notes, were, which were really in essence coupons, that if you came into a pharmacy that offered Coca-Cola syrup, you could get your drink. So we think about it even back then, you know, that it was used. And this was, like I said, late 19th century. And then since then, there have still been different types. You know, the coupons have continued and things like that. But where we are now, because we're in a digital age, you see a lot more, or really actually, you see a lot more drops. Like there's the drop, it's going to happen. You have to download the Nike app, you know, to, to get to it. Or you see different e-commerce stores using the technology that's available today, like countdown timers and things like that. And so the digital age, we're able to see more of that as a customer and then also as a business, we're able to apply more of it. And I think going forward, you know, as I think we're still going to see that we're going to see a lot of it with technology. And I think too, like realizing that even though we're in an age where we can, things are at our fingertips, like we want something, you know, we feel like we should just be able to go online and get it. I think a lot in business sense, we're starting to realize that, you know, not always making everything accessible can actually even make customers want something more too. So I think that's something we might see a bit more of in the future. And it is important, I would say, for content providers, for experts who dedicate their life to learn specific topic and develop new insights related to that field. It is important for our motivation to have clients who value and come in with this understanding that it is a privilege, not a right to have mm -hmm. access to that information. So I can see how scarcity can be used for good, but also as you and I know very well, many people mm -hmm. use it for evil. So let's talk, yes. about, let's talk about what people mm -hmm. keep in mind to make sure that they use scarcity ethically. Yes. Okay. And that is huge. And that's something I really was trying to push in my book, because if you create fake scarcity or you're unethical in some way, we know that online reputation is a big deal and anybody can go and talk about their bad experience and anybody can read it. And that's really hard to get rid of that type of information and to rebuild that trust. So using any type of fake scarcity, for example, if you say that there's you know only one left in stock, but really 
there's a lot, you know, and so you keep just updating things, you know, and you keep using the same tactic. Well, people start to talk and the short-term gain you might've had from getting sales. It's not going to be worth it in the long run because you're going to hurt your reputation. So the reason I really called out the four different types of scarcity is because you don't have to create fake scarcity and you never should create fake scarcity, but you could do things that are genuine and authentic. You can have a product that you only offer for a limited time or a service that maybe you bundle services and now it's a limited edition bundle of services. That's very, it's still very ethical and it's effective too. And so you can still ignite that feeling of scarcity, but you're doing it in a way that aligns with your product or your service. And it's something that's still helpful for the customer. And then even just one last example of that too is, you know, I know one business that um, I was talking to and they hold a lot of events and they even were talking about that they send out emails and we all get these emails too. That says like how many seats are left. And I, when I was talking to the founder of the company, he said that they discovered that when they don't do that, send those emails out, they actually have some of their members get upset because they said, well, we didn't know it was selling out. We didn't know we needed to reserve our seats. So I think about that a lot. Like some of this, when we're thinking about scarcity and we are informing our customers, we're doing just that. We're informing our customers. We're helping them. And I just think that was a great example. It is a very, very great example. And of course, as you mentioned, we are all getting these emails and uh, to some degree suffers from fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how can someone protect themselves so that they purchase only products and services that actually serve them, that actually they need versus buying something just because of some scarcity mm -hmm. that was used in an email or in a video speech and so on. Right. And so that is part of really an effect of scarcity. It's it's FOMO, so fear of missing out, which really that's the buzzword that we all use, but it's based on a deeper psychological theory. It's loss aversion. We fear loss more than we get excited about gain. So that feeling is stronger when it comes to loss. And that's also why scarcity is so powerful because it does represent a potential loss. Something's hard to get and there's a, there's a chance we might not get it. So we might lose out, but it doesn't mean that you're just going to always fall for that now because that's how we're wired. I mean, there are things you can do and I'll admittedly tell you that these are things that I have to remind myself about because I still sometimes get drawn into things and here I've studied it. I've written about it. I'm a marketer and I still sometimes get caught up in, Oh, well, I don't, I want to make sure I get that too. So there's a few things. Uh, Number one, I think, is just recognizing that we are wired to avoid loss. And I think that's the first thing. And I, you might have heard that before, but for me, when I truly understood that, then I started to recognize, okay, the reason I want this is because I don't want to miss out on something. And I'm talking about purchases, right? And so that's the first thing to me is just recognizing that that's how we're made up. So first part. But then the second thing is to not take that quick action because that's what happens when we are faced with scarcity. A lot of times we just take a quick action because we want to make sure we get whatever that is. So taking the time to think about it, whatever it might be, if that means having to wait 24 hours before reserving your seat at that event or before going and purchasing that item, you'll be surprised because a lot of times within 24 hours, that feeling's going to dissipate. And we've actually seen that in research. It's called anticipated regret. 
And that's part of FOMO, but anticipated regret, what we've seen through studies is that it's short-lived. So we feel that strong, you know, we don't want to miss out, but we're probably not going to be thinking about it later on. It just, it starts to go away. And then just again, taking that time and then asking yourself, why am I really making this purchase and try to rationalize it? And that helps you overcome a lot of that FOMO. This anticipated regret understanding is very powerful. Just understanding that Mm -hmm. it probably will pass very quickly, or if it doesn't pass, maybe it is something you really want truly want in your right. life to benefit you and, and serve you. Such a powerful advice. Mindy, you you teach in some of the top universities in the world and you teach some of the brightest students in the world. What are some of the major gaps you find in their thinking when they come join your class before you teach them? What are the major gaps in their understanding? Yeah, well, in terms of just the whole concept with what we're talking about, they don't realize that that's what's happening. And I think a lot of times when we've had conversations in class, because I'll ask students, you know, different questions, trying to probe probe them and ask them for real life scenarios. Like, for example, there was one student and I was talking about actually social media marketing. And then she started talking about, oh yeah, you know, there was an ad that I saw and I went to the site and I filled up my shopping cart because it was a flash sale. But then she actually said, she goes, but right before I, hit the buy button because I think she'd already filled up her cart to a couple hundred dollars, which is a lot for college students or really for a lot of people. Well, it's, it's a lot of money just to throw away. And she said she stopped and started doing some online research about their reputation. But what was interesting though is, and she didn't make the purchase because they didn't have a good reputation, but what she didn't realize is really what was causing her to make that decision. And it was, she knew it was a flash sale, but thought, oh, well, it's just because I want to get a good deal, not recognizing that, no, it was your fear of missing out. And it was that you made a quick decision because we know from brain scans that when faced with scarcity, we're going to skip those decision-making processes, like some of those steps and go straight there. And so a lot of the students just don't make that connection and they feel like, oh, well, all my, you know, not all, but a lot of my decisions that I'm making are all based on, you know, rational thinking, which trying to explain, well, some of it is not, you know, going through that. So there's definitely a big gap there. And what do you find happens with students as they go through your training? What are some of the key insights do you think mm-hmm. gain that changes how they view marketing? Yes, it's, well, and I teach marketing classes. So they're definitely learning about marketing, but it is pretty funny because there's a commonality that I see. And that's by the end of the semester, so many of them are come up and tell me, oh, I saw this ad or I saw this message and I know what's happening. I know which theories involved here and I know what they're trying to say. And it's, it's pretty, it's, it's always really fun to hear that because now they know they, I feel like they're more informed consumers. And then also at the same time, it helps them understand too, even like the ethical aspects. Cause we talk about that so much, you know, that you can use scarcity marketing in a very ethical way, which we've already talked about, but you know, what does that look like? And what's, you know, where, where are those lines not to, to cross? And so they definitely, by the end of the semester, they get it. And it's always really fun to see that. It is so incredible. Mindy, and then in terms of what you're still trying to understand in your research, in your work, are there still areas where you're still trying to figure it out? So yes, and that's actually a really good question because one of the areas is 
really the impact of age. Like there, we do know there have been some research where we know that as people age and more when I'm saying that retirement years, that they're not as susceptible to scarcity marketing, but that whole area really needs to be expanded more because there are so many different forms of scarcity is that we know overall, like things that are high demand popularity, probably not going to draw them in because they have their certain things that they like. And so that's an area that really just needs a bit more. And is something that, you know, I'm looking at too, with research and, and pursuing. And what are some of the hypotheses you are working with? Have you already developed any? Well, I'm still working on, on those, but one of my hypotheses is that really, even once we get to, well, I'll tell you actually. <laughs> so I do have some. So really for, and I'm going to talk about age, because again, that's what I'm looking at, like the Gen Z, really that age group, and also the millennial age group, you know, they're now aging a bit more. And so there's certain things that they don't succumb to as much as that younger generation. So for me, one of the things that I want to dive into even more is that younger generation, when we're looking at Gen Z, my hypothesis is that they are more attracted to supply-related scarcity, that that is something that they fall for more because, and this is not, again, you know, I got to dive into the research. So I'm just giving opinions at this point. I don't want anyone to take this for, for like research at this point, published research. But really my guess is that that particular group, because they are so ingrained in social media and sharing so many aspects of their life, they're very prone to self-expression or wanting to pursue self-expression, which is really an area that aligns with supply-related scarcity because you want to be unique. You want to be different. You want to show the latest thing you have, but you don't want to be like everyone else. And so that's one particular area. Um, I did do some research in terms of demand-related scarcity already in that area, and it was one that they're not as susceptible as I had originally hypothesized, but I do feel like you know, continuing on with the supply-related scarcity, we're going to see that. And then from what you know so far, would you say that the older someone is, the less susceptible they are to scarcity? So, so to special, well, to demand-related scarcity. Yes, we know that. And just overall, again, with older, the older we get, we have preferences to certain brands and certain things that, you know, that makes us not want to switch because something's just, you know, running out of stock. And so we do know that with that age group. But like I said, one of the things just to dive into more and to really detail which part of scarcity is the one that they're more susceptible to versus not susceptible to. But it's the demand related that really dissipates over, over time. Mindy, and uh, let's say we have someone listening to us mm -hmm. now and they what they offer to their clients is of huge value. They really care about their service and product. So they are real deal. Yes. And they would love to learn more about how to use marketing mm. to break through all this noise because there's just so much noise in the marketplace right now and a lot of people selling products and services that actually deliver no value. Mm -hmm. Also, because it's so easy even to... So, for example, you mentioned that you can look up someone online and you can mm -hmm. see reviews, but a lot of those things are not even real reviews, mm -hmm. even bad ones. Because I see it all the time because I know a lot of business owners, 
a lot of the times those are trolls or competitors mm-hmm. those bad reviews and then it's very hard to remove them or someone with a personal vendetta for no reason and um, so I was wondering what advice would you give to someone who really is who cares deeply about their clients and they want to understand how to use marketing specifically, mm-hmm. how to use scarcity in an ethical way mm-hmm. through the noise and so that they can serve the clients and give them the value that they can provide. Yeah, yeah. So when I think about that too, and I'll answer it more from a service provider perspective versus you know products, because a lot of what I've been talking about right now have been products. But in terms of, let's say it's a service, you're a consultant, you provide something, like you said, a value, and it's really your time that you're giving them and your expertise. How do you show scarcity in that? And I will tell you that the principle does still apply. Apply. Because the thing is, in a service-oriented business, and especially if you are the one providing it as the consultant, your time is naturally limited. So time is scarce. Everybody, we only have 24 hours in the day, which means that you can only serve so many clients at a time in a beneficial way. And so one of the things that um, is just works really great, and I will tell you that from conversations and from personal experience, is that when you are talking to prospective clients, you know, of course you're showing your expertise, you know, you're telling them you know, the value and what they're going to get, but also during that conversation, letting them know that you are also selective on clients that you work with because your you you know your time is limited and you want to make sure that you are giving the best value to every single client and that statement alone is actually invokes scarcity because you're doing two things you're showing that you are valuable which is actually part of scarcity so remember scarcity and value go hand in hand and that you are exclusive really meaning you're going to only work with so many people which also ignites some of that scarcity feeling and what's interesting with consultants that I know that I've done that and again it's honest because it's we can only work with so many people and so even if you have a team again you can only work with so many clients and so it's, it's a very honest way but I know of a lot of consultants that have done that and it's interesting because what happens when you start talking and with a pr- prospect that way is that it flips the table a little bit where now that potential client's going to tell you why you should consider hiring or working with them and why they would make a good client. And so it's really interesting because I've heard that over and over again. Again, it's completely ethical because it's true, but a lot of times we don't think in those terms and we're like, well, we just need to make sure we're getting more business and really we should be selective, which means we're valuing ourselves and what we have to offer. Mindy, and uh, since you spoke specifically about consulting services, and so many of our listeners are actually offering consulting services, are <laughs> working for very large organizations. I was wondering if you have any additional things that you found that work in your experience that people could use to market their consulting services, especially within as part of a large organization, but even so, as you know, still, even when you work as part of a large consulting organization, mm-hmm. it's about mm-hmm. your relationship with the client, your communication with the client, mm-hmm. and your your ability to market yourself verbally or in writing with that client. Mm-hmm. Any other ideas that come to mind? Because I know that those will be gold. For- <laughs> well, a couple of things, and I guess, and I'm 
I'm going to give a couple of different examples because it depends on, you know, even if you're in a big consulting company, if you're involved at all in the proposal process, I'll talk, I'll give an example of that. And then just when you're talking to clients too. So let's talk first about the proposal side. So if you are, even if it's a bigger company, you are involved in putting together that proposal for the potential client there, you can actually include some of the demand related scarcity ideas. And that's where you can have verbiage in there where you lay out, you know, the services and the retainer or specific consulting package and indicate this is the one most clients prefer, or this is the most popular or whatever it might be, because then that does show that demand related scarcity. And it allows that person who's considering the proposal to even take a mental shortcut of, well, if you're giving them different options, they're going to choose this one because that's what other people chose too. So it must be a good idea. And then in terms of when you're actually like working with clients, you know, you talked a bit about uh, reviews, which I agree with you. It's so hard with reviews. But showing your value, you know, just as you're talking, you know, mentioning other similar success stories, you know, where it could be a project that was similar to theirs and it was successful, that what it's doing, it's that social proof because you're just talking it through and you're not saying, oh, I'm so great. I've gotten these great results. You're just talking about a scenario, but it does show that there is that social proof. It's also a term, you might've heard this before, people like me. I want to see that you've worked with people like me. And so hearing those kind of stories and the successes really do help too. Mindy, and a part of your book, any other resources you would recommend if someone want to listen to this and they thought, okay, I love what Mindy is saying. I'm getting your book. I need to learn everything I can. Any other resources, books, mm-hmm. websites, anything that you would recommend for someone to dive in? Yes. Okay. So obviously I'm a little bit... Uh, more attracted to psychology type books. And so Influence, if you haven't read the book Influence by Robert Cialdini, that is a must read. And that's one where um, he dives into the different influence factors and it doesn't matter what industry you're in, you will have takeaways from it. And it's all based on research. And actually scarcity is one of those factors that he had called out in his book. And so I, he's, out not very far from where I'm at. And so he's someone that I talk to periodically, but his book's iconic. It's been around for decades. I think it's been a bestseller for decades too, but it's so dense with information that that is one. If you haven't read it, read that one. And of course read mine too, but read that, read that one. This is a great advice. Mindy, and uh, I think I also have to ask you this question because so many of my clients I see, they are incredibly competent at what they do and what they're struggling with are personal elements, such as how do you balance the mind in career and the family? And I know you are able to do that. You have a very successful career in a very, very competitive world. And you also have a family. Any tips on how to manage this? How did you figure it out for yourself? <laughs> I feel like I'm every day figuring it out. <laughs> so you know, I have, yes, I have two teenage boys. So when they were younger is actually when I ended up stepping out on my own because they were young and I wanted to be around with them more. I was already traveling 25% of the year and it was going to increase to almost a third of the year. So I just looked at that and I said, well, what do I value more? Well, I value my children more. And for me, I really, and I'm saying this, but I 
this is like an everyday reminder for myself is that when I'm working, I'm working and I'm focused and that's where my mind is. And I'm very big into blocking out certain parts of my day. But when I'm with my kids, especially with them being teenagers, I feel like I really need to be mentally present is that I'm there with them. And I try hard and I have to remind myself, don't think about what needs to be done still, you know, on this project or that task, just focus on this time right now, because all those other things will still be there. And again, it's a constant reminder. So I'm saying this right now, but every day I have to remind myself, no, I'm going to be with my kids. We're going to go have dinner. I, that particular project will be there in the morning. I can do that in the morning. And then at the same time, you also have to take care of yourself. You have mm-hmm. to health, your, make sure that your mental health is in great shape, your physical health. Do you have certain routines that you developed for yourself that allow you to keep everything in balance? Yeah. Yes. And so it's been a crazy, been a crazy few weeks uh, with the book coming out, but before that, and so my daily routine, I'm a morning person. So I'm a very early riser and that I love the mornings because it's so quiet. And so that's my time. I'll get up, I'll read, I'll meditate, I'll work out and then start my day that way. I have found that if I try to do those things later, because sometimes I get up, I'm like, well, no, I think I'm going to get this done right now instead. I won't work out. I won't do those other things. Even though I tell myself I'm going to do it later on in the day, I just won't. So I'm really big on routine. So for me, it's the mornings. So you make sure that you fit in everything that you know you have to do, like exercising and so on, in the morning. In the morning. Yes. Do you have a specific list of activities that you have to do in the morning that you think will work for most people? Yeah, well, I mean, I... So the whole even thing with meditating is a newer thing for me. And part of that was just to try to calm my mind. So when I talked about being present with my kids, that was a big motivator. Like, how can I just really control, you know, my thoughts and just clear my mind? And that's how that started working. But I would recommend that for everyone. And, you know, 10 minutes, I'm not, I can't, I have a harder time going longer than that because then I am, my mind's off (laughs) and going. And so just 10 minutes, but the exercise is a big thing. And there was actually, I was listening to um, another author talking about exercise. And I always think of exercise as my just physical health and staying in shape. That's how I've always thought of it. But there's actually now research that shows that it keeps your brain younger and from aging and, you know, really really working at its full capacity. And so, and, and I don't remember all the details, but even talked about part of the brain expands, you know, right after exercise. And I thought, gosh, and that's the first thing that I sometimes will cut out if I'm busy, which should be the last thing I'm cutting out. And so I think that's just really important. The other thing I've done, and this was really hard to do is I would still work every day, even on the weekends, you know, get up in the morning and do some work before everyone was awake. But I stopped doing that on Sundays, uh, probably the last few few months where just everything is in the other days. And I remember when I first made that decision, I thought that meant my other six days were going to be packed, but somehow it wasn't. And I feel like that day just to completely reset, just to completely reset has done wonders. Like it has done wonders for probably even just my, my, uh, patience with my kids and just, you know, the excitement to start Monday, you know, anew and, and get things going. And this is probably because your mind is rested. Mm-hmm. You're much more effective. You can get things done much faster. And then you don't need that seventh day in a big Right. 
Right. It's exactly. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I don't know why I didn't do that a long time ago. <laughs> it's been really nice. Yes. Those things, sometimes you come across things in life and you think, oh, if I only knew this, <laughs> exactly. seen, my life would be different. I hear that a lot from my clients. They often write to us and they say, if I only found you when I was in high school, I would be a president by now that I love those messages. Yes. Mindy, and uh, this day, Sunday that you're taking off, mm -hmm. such an inspiration for me because I'm extreme workaholic. <laughs> I'm wondering what, because I work every day. I wonder, what do you even do? <laughs> <laughs> what do you even do if you are not working to rest? Right. That's a good question because like during the week, I have a really hard time relaxing. I just, I don't know what to do with myself. Like I just, yeah, I don't know what to do. I flounder a little bit. So Sundays, we actually made it a habit too. So we, we as a family, we go to church in the morning. So we have a routine now. And then we go out to brunch. And then we'll, I'll go hiking with my boys and things like that. Or we might drive up. I'm in Arizona. Uh, so if it's really hot, well, in the summer, it's really hot. Not if it is, but we'll drive up to a day trip to the mountains or reading. And so on Sundays when I read, I won't let myself even read a nonfiction book because my I just don't want to have to think too hard. So I'll pick up fiction books. And I've realized that I like all types of genre. I don't even have a specific. I just like to be able to do something. And then I even found with that, having a book in my hands, I can't do anything else. Like I can't, because you've got an actual book in your hands. I can't try to, oh, I'm going to check emails while I do this. No, because I'm actually reading. And so that's a huge thing. So just trying to, a lot of family time reading and just trying to relax, but it's hard. So if you're not doing that, it is a huge transition because then you feel like you're, or I did feel like I was lazy or I was wasting time. But again, I don't feel less productive at all. I feel like I'm getting the same amount of work done just in less period of time. I, I think that I kind of mastered this balance where I'm able to be very effective and give myself just enough rest every day to be effective the next day. Mm. But I, I'm convinced that if I could force myself to take this day off once a week, I probably will be even more productive. Yes. Do you remember that first time when you decided I'm actually not going to work? <laughs> Do you remember what was it like? What was your experience? I'm not going to lie. I was actually stressed out. <laughs> I was stressed out because I also teach. And so I thought a lot of times on Sunday, I would do grading. Like that would be a day I'd grade my papers as well as other work. And I was stressed out the entire day thinking like, how am I going to approach? Like, it's going to be stressful. I'm going to have Monday. I'm going to have all these things to do. And so, I mean, it took me. It took me probably a couple of weeks to kind of get in it because again, I just want to be real with you. I was stressed that first Sunday. So as we were doing these different things, that's all I kept thinking about, but not anymore. So now I can truly relax. Yes. Your mind kind of always calculates what you can do with that time. Okay. So now yes. lost an hour, what I could have done in that. Right. Yeah. And I think so many of us, we do like try to, and me included, like we try to fit it everything we possibly can. So we look at our day and like, okay, I have that, like, I'm going to do this, this and that. And you just, you maximize that time, which is a good thing. And that also leads to success. But like we're talking about, there has to be a little bit of a balance. Very true. And do you also have some kind of evening routine that allows you to wind down and actually be able to quiet your mind and fall asleep easily? So 
Yes. And going back to a lot of times and I'll, I'll start reading again at night too, because that makes me very tired. And so usually it's, you know, we do, I do almost the same things. I feel like every night, especially because I have kids, I don't go out much, <laughs> do things. And so, yeah, I mean, by the time the evening comes along, I'll just read until I get tired. And after I've, you know, had dinner with my family and enjoyed time with them and it, it's a ritual. I mean, it's like so many things, even going back to psychology as humans, we want traditions, we want rituals, we want predictability and stability. And so when you create a routine like that, your mind's like, okay, this is, this is what we do before bedtime. And so it does help still your mind. Mindy, and you also mentioned meditation and specifically, I love the fact that you're just starting out to meditate. Yeah. You're able to explain it to a new person who never meditated or tried multiple times, but it never stuck because it's just too hard and yeah. mind just racing and you feel like you're wasting time. Firstly, what kind of meditation do you use? Because there are all kinds. Do you use guide, guided and if guided, what kind? And also what advice would you have for someone who listened to you now mm -hmm. and thought, okay, no, you know what? I will give it another try. <laughs> Yeah. So I, okay. And I've been one of those people that have tried it on and off for years and like, I can't do this, but this is, this has been a long stretch of doing it, like truly being dedicated to doing it. What I actually have been using is UCLA has a, an app and I think it's UCLA mindfulness. It's a free app and they have guided medic meditations, but then they also, once you're you feel comfortable, they just have timers where you can set, I want to meditate for five minutes or 10 minutes. And it is just quiet, but it has, you know, a bell. So you know when to start and finish. So I started with the guided because it really teaches you, you know, how to breathe and, and all of that, you know, the position and, and things. And so that um, has been really helpful. So I started with that and then I just went to the timers, but I think the biggest thing that I learned, and I can't remember where I heard this. So it could have been something I was watching about meditation. I don't remember, but it was an expert. And he just said, the misconception is we think that meditation means we're turning our brains off. And that's where I would just all the time beat myself up. Cause like, I can't stop thinking. And I think that's a lot of us when we're in these, you know, high pressure positions, it is, you can't stop thinking. And so what I learned and what hearing those words helped a lot. So it's not a matter of you're going to not, not think during that time period. It's just when thoughts come in, you recognize the thoughts and just kind of push them away. And that's hard. <laughs> it's practice. It's like working out. It's practice. It's just like, okay. I'm going to think about that later and just keep pushing those thoughts away and just sit there and just, just be still. And so when I realized that it didn't have to be perfect, cause I always like try to make everything just perfect. Like, Oh, I got it. I'm going to start meditating. That means I'm going to be great at it. No, <laughs> it just means you're going to practice it. So to me, it's like any exercise you practice it, but you're going to have thoughts in your mind, recognize it and just kind of move on from there. And it really does help. It is very powerful such a powerful practice and I actually learned it very long time ago before actually meditating I learned to just quiet my mind to the point mm. of no thoughts and I'm oh that's great to do that it's such a powerful thing to do Mindy the last question my favorite question <laughs> in the last two okay let's say last 10 years any period of time but probably last few years what were two, three aha moments, realizations that were instrumental for changing how you looked at the world? Mm. One of those things where you 
understood something and you it just changed the way you look at the world it was such a such an important knowledge or insight for you to have yeah that's a great question okay so i'm i probably could come up with a lot but the first two things that popped into my mind you know one of them the first thing that popped into my mind was finally when i realized that we all struggle with certain insecurities. And what I mean by that is we feel like, you know, there's so, always going to be someone who knows more than you or you're inferior in some way. And, and I always thought that was just me. And then now there's even also a buzzword for that imposter syndrome. And I remember that aha moment of talking to someone. So a business friend of mine, and he was saying, well, sometimes I feel that way too. And I thought, I thought I was the only one. And then the more we talked and then the more you know, I started hearing other people's stories I thought, you know, that's how a lot of us feel, you know, again, we're humans, you know, we're not going to be perfect. We're going to feel that. And that's okay. That is okay. As long as we're still learning, we're still progressing. That's the important part. So that was to me a huge aha moment. And then uh, I would say another aha moment for me is that, you know, realizing I already you know, I knew, especially I tell my students this, like you got to go out and you really got to put yourself out there and meet people. And I know that I say that to my students, but it doesn't mean I always practice what I preach. Sometimes like, I don't really feel like doing that. But I think I had a big aha moment when I finally started to push myself out there into situations where I wouldn't, and I'm talking about in the business world, where I'm in a position now where I'm going to meet some people that would be beneficial to know. And my inclination is usually to like not do any of that, or I'm just going to, I'm just going to stay home with my book, <laughs> you know, things like that. But it was a real aha moment because that's when I look back at some of my best and deepest relationships within the business world. It's because I just pushed myself when I felt a little uncomfortable. I don't want to go to this event. I'm by myself. I'm not going to know anybody, but it was a real aha moment that, you know, what? it's okay. That's okay. Um, it's worthwhile. And so those are two big things that come to my mind. I loved it. Thank you so much for sharing it and being so open. I think that the second one, especially, but both actually of them, both of mm -hmm. them are very, very, very relevant for so many people. And um, it's just so important to, to push ourselves and do things that are not comfortable because if we do yes. it, always did, we will get what we always got. <laughs> right. Mindy, this is a fantastic place to end our amazing session. Before we do that, do you have anything else you would like to share? I think I've shared. I've shared a lot. <laughs> so I, I don't think I have anything else. Perfect. I always ask this. I always try to ask this in case you wanted to cover something that I haven't asked. Oh, I appreciate it. Fantastic. Where can listeners find you? Yes. Good question. So the easiest way is powerofscarcity.com. So that's the name of my book, powerofscarcity.com. But that's actually takes you to my book page, but it also takes you to my website. So it has all my contact information on there. So it's very easy to get a hold of me. But I would definitely love to connect um, with anyone who's listening to this and resonates with some of these messages. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, again for tuning in. Our guest today, again, has been Mindy Weinstein. You can check out Mindy's book. It is called The Power of Scarcity. And I'm looking forward to see you all in the next session. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. 
Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.